Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Such a blessing to worship our awesome God. Uh, just one thing before we begin, uh, after the service, just it's, it's been customary, but I've been slack to say anything. But if you would like to pray with someone, come up to the front after the service and I will pray with you or someone will pray with you. It's just a great opportunity to facilitate times of prayer together, a praise to the Lord. And so that's on offer if you so desire, if you are so led, either in response to something you've heard today or there's a pressing need or a, a desire to pray, to praise the Lord. Feel free to avail yourselves of that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are our Father, that you are the Lord of earth and heaven, the creator of all things, our God, our Savior, our Messiah, the one who loves us, the one who has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, the one whose will is done in heaven and on earth. And we praise you, Lord, that you are almighty, that you are good and glorious, and we can come to you now to seek your face, knowing we have your favor, having received it through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we draw near to you now, Father, to hear from you. We want to hear from your mouth the things that you would have us do and learn and walk in light of your word. And so I pray, Lord, you would unite us to fear your name, to rejoice in your goodness, and to learn and to grow and to celebrate and praise how awesome you are in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Genesis 11, if you'll turn there. I was reminiscing a bit this week about clamoring into the old blue and white Volkswagen bus and going to my grandpa's and grandma's house up Wildcat Canyon Road. It's a very windy road in East County of San Diego. And as my dad pushed that four-cylinder to the max, which was not fast, we uh, would pass these mile markers. And I, you know, as a kid, it took half an hour, but it felt very long. You're going up and down and these mile markers would click by and you'd see them around mile 11. That meant you're coming to a big drop and almost there. It's like, oh, finally, we're almost there. And uh, we always made it. It took a while, but we did make it. And if we look back upon our lives and upon history, there are milestones. There are things we can look back and say, okay, there are things that happened along the way that have led me to this place where I am today. And we can know that God was there. In that moment, we don't always feel his presence. We don't always recognize how close he is and how he's helping us. But often when we look back, we're like, God guided me through that. God protected me. God provided at the perfect time. And then our life becomes a testimony of his faithfulness, that he was with us, that he provided and cared for us, that he led, him, led us to him and to be used by him. And during this study of Genesis, we have seen a few of those major milestones of the earth and history with uh, the, we, we witnessed the creation of all things, of all living things by God, man's rebellion and fallen to sin, God's judgment with the global flood. And now we arrive at the next one, which is the Tower of Babel. Last week, we talked about how God wiping the earth of sinners, save eight people, did not rid the world of sin because guess what? There were still eight sinners. Noah and his family, though a righteous man and walked with God, he uh, inherited the curse from Adam, the sin that brings death. 
It's an incurable condition that humanity has suffered under since the beginning. And after the flood, Genesis 9-1 says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you can know that whenever God gives a command, there will be some people who, who disobey that command, who go, no. Right? Adam and Eve, and all the way through. When God says something, not everyone obeys him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they conspired to transgress. And today we're going to read of everyone joining in forces in opposition to God. But God, he is wise and mighty and awesome, and he's not troubled by this. Like, there's a lot in the world that I find very troubling. There's things I hear or see that are troubling, but God is not troubled. He is not touched um, as far as feeling insecure or overwhelmed about what to do. He knows what he is doing, and he is on the throne. Even when people do what they will do, God's plan will still be accomplished in due time. Let's pick up our text in Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God had told Noah and all those preserved from the flood, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Noah walked with God. It seems as time went on, that command was ignored or forgotten as the people gathered together as one and journeyed from the east. They all spoke one language. They were all one people. It's not recorded for us what language that was that they were speaking. Languages today, they're often defined by where you're from or a group of people. Like my forefathers way back, four or five generations, likely spoke French because they lived in France, right? So we, we, we only know they spoke that language is because they came from that place. But we don't know. There were no boundaries. There were no people groups. It was just one group of people that all spoke the same thing. And they found a plain and they, that's an area in Shinar that later became known as Babylon where they dwelt together and they said, hey, let's make bricks. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower to reach up to heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves and prevent being scattered. It's like they built this artificial mountain they said, we're going to rally around and build this thing to prevent the thing that God said should happen, that we should fill the whole earth, that we should be fruitful and multiply. And notice the way that they say that. It's very much all about them. There's really no regard of God at all there where they say, let us make bricks. Like, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered. They are central to their plans. God's not in their plan. At all. They were more interested to make a name for themselves and to honor the God whose name is above all names. It's uncanny how man made in God's image seeks to be God, to live as God. And that was the temptation Eve fell under where if you eat of this fruit, you'll be wise like God. You'll have understanding like him. Then people, they're working to build a tower to reach up to God, who's unapproachable in glory. 
And this wasn't a sort, this wasn't about national pride. Like if you remember the space race, you've heard about it in the 50s and 60s, where the U.S. and the Russians were showing their technological savvy by, you know, engineering a spacecraft, and, and that was a source of national pride. This was all about them. This was all about them really against God, that they were going to make a name for themselves, that they were going to prevent being scattered and they united in pride to avoid doing the thing that God directed them to do. Genesis 11, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. That they may not understand one another's speech the labor of the people to build the city. It was known to God. He says, let's go down and check out what they're doing. Let's see what they're building. And he came down to see it. And he observed they're all one people. They're all united in, in one language. And they're all united with this one purpose. There's no checks and balances like we see in governments today between parties or one nation and another nation that are operating for the prosperity and peace of their own people where they're trying to live together in harmony. They were all in opposition to God. There was nothing to check them. There was nothing to guide or to, because they weren't looking to the Lord, God would intervene. By his counsel, suddenly they were confused with this flood of languages. Thousands of languages just suddenly were birthed in a moment. Just think about how that would be, where people that you had conversed with, suddenly you weren't able to understand each other. You can understand what other people are saying, and you're calling a chair a chair, but they're calling it something totally different, and they don't know what you're saying. And it was shocking. It was unexplained. Like nobody, we don't read of anyone understanding what actually just happened but they're all confused. God brought great confusion and disorder upon their building project by erecting this language barrier. They couldn't cross it. Now, I, just for grins, I tried to find some alternate explanations offered for how all languages came to be. I, I found this quote from a Forbes website. It does not fill me with confidence. It says, the earliest language reasonably confidently identified through scientific methods, methods is probably Proto-Afro-Asiatic. And I was like, why don't we just say, we don't know? That seems a lot better to me. But I was finding quite a lot of the same thing, and so that was just like, the one, like, all right, this is the best we can do. It seems like a lot of linguists, they marry the formation of languages to Darwinian evolution. It poses a lot of problems, like trying to explain how non-life became life or uh, how you have disorder and chaos to orderly cellular structure that reproduces. It's very difficult to try to explain that when you have all these languages that we know have gone extinct and there's very few that are being made. And if they are, it's pulling from different languages to cobble together a different one. God created plants and animals fully formed, and he created languages fully formed as well, understood by the speaker and some who understood them and others it was just babbling. They had no idea what they were saying. While we do observe languages changing over time, you can read a book written in English a couple hundred years ago and you'll 
see for yourself how things have changed. The Bible teaches that God confused languages, that he created all these languages just like he created man, and that man's united efforts proved futile over the God who is gracious and merciful. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Man's plan overruled by God's plan, who reigns over the affairs of men. It's like those unwilling to fill the earth and subdue it were scattered when God confused them. And think of the grace and mercy of the way that God did this. Because in causing these languages to be birthed, he was gracious to enrich them, to expand their means of communication. He didn't hinder their communication. He actually expanded it. And by it created all these different cultures so that he might draw them all to himself. Like nothing is too hard for God. Man had a plan that opposed God and God came down, saw it, and intervened. Now, this word Babel, it means confusion. And we see that by this confusion, it divided people into families, into languages, and nations, as it said several times in the previous chapter. So they left this building unfinished, this tower half-built, a testimony, really, of man who works for his own glory that prematurely ends in infamy. And there it stood, a monument to their failure and to God's plans and success. That God's able to bring the, the labor of man to nothing and at the same time accomplish his plans and purposes. It's like, if God's plans are not done by people's obedience to him, it will be done by him in spite of their disobedience. What confidence we can have in God. One thing I wanted to point out is that these nine verses, they're an example of chiastic structure that we find throughout the Bible. And it's a literary device that repeats details in the opposite order. So like looking into a mirror. A simple example would be when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So you're just repeating the same thing, but in a different order, so it gives you more understanding. Or... My dad's favorite was, be true to your teeth or they will be false to you. <laughs> okay, chiastic, that's what that is. Um, so I have a slide um, about this and I'll see if it comes up, it does. So I'll move just to the side. So you see that there was one language in all the earth. People found a plain and dwelt together. They said, come, let's build a city that rises to heaven. God came and looked at the city. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. The people were scattered and lived everywhere. There were many languages spoken on the earth. So that's the structure here. And the, the main point is the middle. God came and looked. He came and saw. And then he confused their languages. And you'll see these, this structure sometimes throughout large portions of the Bible or like a small thing that Jesus says. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out so you could be aware that this, this is the structure that's employed and it's a, it's a literary device that we see throughout the Bible. The center point, God came down. God saw, God intervened, God is there, God rules. 
He didn't rob them of communication. It's like by one man, Adam, created in the image of God, through him, sin came into the world. But by the sacrifice of God, born as a man, he would provide forgiveness and eternal life. We had no choice but to be dead in sins. Jesus came to earth so we could choose him and have life. So you see that structure. That it's parallelism that can be the same or opposite. We can be born again. We can be filled with the spirit. And it's estimated there's 7,000 plus languages spoken today. The design for all of them is the worship praise of God. That we would all be joined together. Every one of those languages that God has made, that we would be praising him with that language. That we would be speaking truth. God's given us all unique voices, singing voices, speaking voices. Instead of boasting in pride, instead of lying or deceit, we're to speak the truth. We're to proclaim the goodness of God. Using edifying words rather than words that tear down. I love this passage in Zephaniah 3, 8 and 9. God spoke to the people of Jerusalem of a future day of judgment. And he uses Babel in that. And it's in contrast to Babel. Zephaniah 3, verse 8. God said through the prophet, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to, as, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So he's saying, I'm going to gather everyone together. Not that they would be making a name for themselves, but that they would have a pure language restored to them to call upon me. That they would all be seeking me. They would all be speaking forth my praise. To serve him with one accord. Pure speech, it only comes from purified hearts. And our hearts are only made pure by being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Instead of gathering together to try to work to reach heaven, we gather together to praise God who came down from heaven. So we're, we're acting in response to him and praising him for his goodness to us all. We aren't to make a name for ourselves, but to praise him whose name is above all. And over the years, sadly, there's some languages or peoples that have been dismissed as inferior. Like if you have an accent that doesn't sound intelligent. And when I started thinking about this, I was like, how judgmental we can be, how judgmental I can be, where we begin to think something about, we connect intelligence to the way you speak or the things that you say. And we can have a lot of just very unloving and sinful judgments. And there are sounds that are common in another language that sound strange or even funny to us. That's just, it's the way that it's spoken. Something can sound ignorant or posh. In some circles, it's common to, to pray in old King, old King James English. Others pray in a language they don't understand. They're just repeating words. And it's foolish to imagine that God hears you better if you speak in Hebrew or Latin than if you speak in the tongue that, you, that he gave you and the language he created. 
You, you are to speak in that language. You are to praise him in that language. More important than the language we speak is how we speak. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Purity of speech is not going back to the original language that was spoken before Babel. It's speaking what's pure and what's true and what's praiseworthy of God according to that truth love and grace of Jesus Christ, our savior. That's where the purity is. It's in him. A voice or an accent, it could be a clanging symbol to your ears, you know? It could be piercing or too loud or obnoxious, but it's sweet music to the Lord when it's spoken to praise him. Gentle, gracious words with a humble spirit. There's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35 through 37, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, if we will speak good things, if we will speak pure things, we must be born again. We must be cleansed from sin and have the Holy Spirit within us. God hears our words and he also looks upon the heart. That's the only way our heart can be cleansed is by his work within us. So picking up our text again in Genesis 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begat Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Presented with this genealogy of Shem, following on from last week, the son of Noah. In the prophecy of Noah, Shem was blessed. In fact, he blessed the God of Shem. And we do see that people who serve the God who is blessed are blessed because he is blessing. He's not just the source of blessing, he is blessed. Thus, he blesses those who are his. The God of Shem would become to known as the God Almighty. I am the God of Israel. And it's through the line of Shem that the promised Messiah and Savior Jesus Christ would come. Thus, the focus zeroes in on Shem and his descendants. 
Now, this genealogy, it's a little different from what we've read earlier, especially in Genesis 5. While there is a discussion of the length of their lives, it doesn't say explicitly anyone died. Before, it had said, you know, after this many years, he died. It doesn't say that here. Uh, Their bodies certainly did die, but the focus is on the blessing, the life that would come through that line. And we also observe that successive generations had children much earlier. We see someone having a child at 29, like that just didn't happen before. So they were having children much earlier in life. So the focus is life continuing, even though the length of life was less, right? People weren't living as long, but life is the focus here. A vertical genealogy, it establishes legitimate ancestry, pointing back, moving ahead to Abram, as we see here as we continue in verse 26. Now, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. The line of Shem goes to Nahor, Terah, and Abram. And this is what uh, the Enduring Word Commentary says. It says, The book of Genesis covers more than 2,000 years and more than 20 generations, yet it spends almost a third of its text on the life of one man, Abram. So we come to Abram, who will be called Abraham later. About, he lived about 2,000 years before Jesus came. A key figure had two, had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Haran, he passed away after his son Lot was born. They both had wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Anyone know the name, what Abram means? It means father, Ironic that he would be, his name would mean father, but he was childless because Sarai was barren without child. And the only way you would be known to be barren is if you had tried to have children and been unsuccessful. And the inability to conceive, it is a painful, soul-searching trial that many people in scripture faced. Interestingly, Abraham and Sarai, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Rachel, all in turn, they all had, had times of barrenness. History shows that God's able to overcome barrenness, that he can make a womb fruitful as the case of Hannah who bore Samuel or Elizabeth who bore John the Baptist. The Bible reveals that God caused the Virgin Mary to conceive even without the seed of a man. And though Jesus would die unmarried, Without any children from his body, he would bring forth descendants as the sand of the sea because of all those who are born again through faith in him. Spiritual fruitfulness that is eternal. Both Abram and Sarai, they're featured in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12, it says this, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
when she was of age to bring forth children, she didn't. She couldn't. But by faith in God, when she was past the age, after God had changed her name from Sarai to Sarah, she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. It was grievous for her to be barren, but we see when she did have a child that she laughed. She laughed in derision when she heard that she would, like, in about a year's time, Sarah is going to have a child. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. Me and also my husband, we're way past the childbearing years. And he's like, why did your wife laugh? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. You did laugh. Um, but now she's laughing because she's joyful, because she has seen the fulfillment of God's word and having that child, Isaac. And by faith in God, we too can experience joy beyond words from the spiritual fruitfulness that he provides from our once barren lives before we were born again. And there's people who are unhappy without children. There are people who are unhappy with children. When we find that our joy is in the Lord God who loves us, we lack no good thing. And I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 56, 3 through 7, just for a word on this. I happened to read this the night before I came to this passage in study, and I thought it was just really appropriate and relevant. So Isaiah 56, 3 through 7. I believe we can identify with what is written here. The Lord said through the prophet, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." Sarai was not barren by choice. As a result, was alone without children, and there were eunuchs who were made eunuchs, not their choice. They were serving in the kings of foreign courts. And the prophet Isaiah, he spoke to foreigners and eunuchs, people who felt outside, that they weren't accepted, that they were fruitless, that they were alone. They didn't have a family that they wanted. And if you were castrated, it would seem like you're thinking of your family tree and you're like, it ends with me. And God's like, let's, you need to change the way you're thinking about this. Do not say that, that you're cut off, that you're dry and alone. Keep his commands, walk in his ways, serve the Lord. And he says, to you who want a house of your own, to you I will give in my house, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So those who join themselves to the Lord to love him and to serve him 
would be joyful in his house of prayer. They would laugh. They would be praising the Lord for his goodness to them. They weren't cut off. They weren't dead or barren. They weren't isolated and alone because they had God as their father. There's joy and eternal life offered by God that we can receive by faith as we walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, having a child is great, but to be a child of God is better and best. To be his child, to have him as a father is better than being a father because he is ours and he loves us. So let's praise God for making us part of his family, making us and and value him above all things, finding in him our source of joy and peace, fulfillment. It's in him. So take encouragement in that. Genesis 11, verse 31. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. It says Terah took his son Abram and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his orphaned grandson Lot, and went from Ur to go to the land of Canaan. But they didn't make it to Canaan. They stopped in Haran for a while and settled there. And I have a visual of Abram's travels. See if it comes up. Okay, it's there. So he started in Ur and he went. So they're heading to Canaan, but they went up there in the Euphrates, along the Euphrates and hung out in Haran for a while. And so we'll get into more of this later, but it's just so you can get a visual of where they were at that time. While the Genesis passage says Terah took Abram out of Ur, we see a little bit more revealed about this in Stephen's address to the Jewish rulers in Acts 7, 2, and 3. He says, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So God had revealed himself to Abraham or Abram in Ur, but he went with his father out of Ur towards Canaan. Now, Ur, that is a notable city in ancient Mesopotamia. It's located in modern-day Iraq. Excavations have proved that it was a a city of great wealth. They were very advanced. They had uh, art and great idolatry. Even Abram's family at one time was caught up in this idolatry. As Joshua said in Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times and they served other gods. We see their family was caught up in idolatry. They served idols, but God brought God revealed himself to Abram in an idolatrous culture, in an idolatrous city, in an idolatrous family, and would bring him to himself. That through him, the blessing would come. The God who came down and looked upon Babel and confused the language of men, it's the same God who spoke to Abram in Mesopotamia. He's the God who's given us the means to communicate with one another, 
with words to proclaim his goodness. And as we look back on history and we see these milestones of the flood and of Babel, Ur being met by God and brought out of that place, going to Canaan, we can see that God orchestrated his plans and his purposes that would lead to a Messiah that leads to the Holy Spirit that God has sent who fills people with his presence. Think about the day of Pentecost. After Jesus ascended alive into heaven, the devout Jews that gathered in Jerusalem were shocked to hear everyone speaking praises to God in their own language. There were 120 Galilean Christians who were speaking in languages they didn't know the wonderful works of God. We read this in Acts 2, 7 through 11. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Friends, this is purity of language. This is purity of speech, that you would speak such praises to God. 1 Corinthians 14 says, those who speak in tongues do not do so to men, but to God, that it is praise to him. And regardless what language we speak, may our hearts be purified of pride and our mouths sanctified by his grace. Our lips and our lives, they can be a testimony of God's faithfulness and provision to us. And he has been faithful according to his promises. So our lips, they ought not to be barren of praise. Never. They should be fruitful to praise and honor and extol God. And instead of making a name for ourselves, let us praise the name of the mighty God who reigns on high. And I was thinking on my way in today, I'm like, you know, how many different languages in this room will there be of people who can say, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in their own tongue. Bless the name of the Lord. And I'm like, at least 10, maybe eight. And then when God gifts you miraculously as well, even more. So let's, let's use our lips to praise him. Let's bless the name of our God. Let's, let's be fruitful in praising the God with that purity of speech because he is worthy. He is glorious. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are glorious and good, that you are our Father, that you have made us fruitful, that you've given us a future and a hope, that you've taken us out of a place of barrenness and being lost in the dark to shining your light upon us and giving us the blessing by your grace, the blessing of life, the blessing of knowing you, the blessing of following Jesus and being born again, being filled with your spirit. And I thank you, Lord, that we can praise you with speech, that even though words fail sometimes to convey the depth of feeling we have, you've given us a way to speak, and you've also given us a way of salvation through Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that confounding the languages at Babel led to Pentecost, and so it was a great miracle and a sign that made people wonder and glorify you. 
and it led people to Christ. And I pray that our lives would be the same, Lord, that the words that we speak, the lives that we live, they would testify of your goodness, that people would come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They would be forgiven. They would be reconciled to God. They would be redeemed. And you would be honored. You would be glorified. That your name would be above all names. And that we proclaim your goodness now and forever, for you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.